Good evening, listeners. It's August 13th, 2017, and you're tuned in to KBVR Corvallis 88.7 FM. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Tyler Shapey from the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. Tyler, say hello. Hi there. And tell us uh, who your uh, primary investigator is for your project, and uh, go ahead and give us a little bit of an intro to your project. Yeah, so first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so my primary advisor, as you mentioned in botany and plant pathology, is Dr. Andy Jones. Um, and he's been here for only a short time, but um, he's do, he does some really interesting stuff. Um, so my particular project uh, focuses on um, soil fungal communities in Panama. Now, what about them? Because we don't know very much about fungal communities. It's still kind of a developing area of research. Yes, absolutely. We are, you know, we've been researching fungal communities for, you know, a while, but we're still learning a lot about um, community dynamics, I would say. Um, people have been looking at, you know, individual fungi for some time. Um, but in terms of looking at the overall community, what shapes community diversity and what species you find, um, those things have, you know, we've been making a lot of progress recently with that. And so what kind of tools would would I use if I wanted to study a fungal community? So the primary tool that I use and that many people are starting to use now is um, DNA sequencing. Um, So we can take soil, a soil sample from anywhere. And actually you can do this for any environmental sample, really. You can take water, you could take, you know, a skin, piece of skin or anything. But I take soil um, and we can extract uh, the DNA from the soil. Um, so there's many, obviously many different organisms that are living in the, DNA, in the in the soil, tens of thousands likely of different species of bacteria um, and fungi. And so we can extract their DNA from the, from the cell and we can actually sequence it and figure out um, its genetic code. And with that genetic code, uh, we can actually identify the species that we have present in the soil. And so just by knowing a maybe the name of a fungus, you can... What else can you learn about that fungus besides just what it's called? Right. So obviously identifying what it is 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 kind of sort of the first step. We're actually, just to mention, we're still sort of in the preliminary stages of doing that because there are so many fungi that we've been finding now with with DNA sequencing that we don't have names for all of them. So that's sort of a a major, that'd be the first step. You know, that's what people were doing when they were discovering new plant species. The first thing is, what is it before you can know much more? But yeah, you're right. We should. It would be great if we knew more, and we are starting to be able to do that. Um, so we have this uh, new da- database that actually came out recently, call- recently called Fungild, um, which is really cool. I actually was at um, the Ecological Society of America meeting recently, 
And there are many people talking about this, this database, and people were very excited about it. And I am too. Um, so basically what it is, is it's a, obviously a database um, of fungal taxa, so that would be fungal species. And people have gone through and they've actually determined um, for each species what uh, sort of ecological role it plays in the community. So to give you an example, uh, we have plant pathogens. That's one, you know, sort of strategy of a, of a soil fungus. There are other, you know, organisms that are pathogens. But um, so you can, people have gone in and sort of assigned uh, a functional category to each of these species. And with that, once we have the taxonomy from the community that we're looking at, which in my case would be in Panama, um, we can use this database to um, identify and figure out what each taxa is doing um, in that community. And so we can start to start to get a picture of sort of overall, you know, how many pathogens are there, how many, um, you know, saprophytes are there. These are things that decompose, you know, litter and wood um, that complete nitrogen cycles and things like that. And I'm going to admit to our listeners that I study soil, so I have a strong bias. But soil is really kind of just like <laughs> the framework for where these living organisms are. But what you're doing in particular is is also trying to identify what their role is in ecology because it's these living organisms that are really playing playing the boundaries and making the rules of you get a little bit of nitrogen or I get to keep this calcium for myself. And then that in turn kind of scales up in, in your case is really driving plant and tree diversity in these Panamanian rainforests. Yeah, absolutely. So th- this is still an emerging picture in sort of plant ecology. This is kind of the hot topic right now in research, which is the role that sort of microorganisms play in determining broader patterns of tree diversity or plant diversity or in, on other, other organisms as well. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in personally in how these microorganisms through their functional, you know, uh, their, their function in the, in the ecosystem, how they can determine these, these broader patterns. Um, and I can get into sort of how plant pathogens uh, play a role in that. Yeah. So I was just thinking that, so plant pathogens, I think bad, you know, they're killing plants. But in your ki- or in your project and, and what people are starting to discover is while plant pathogens do damage plants and potentially fatally damage plants, for the community as a whole community and a whole ecosystem, they're actually playing kind of a different role that maybe isn't uh isn't what we would think of initially or, or that are, that would occur to our listeners right away. So do you want to explain a little bit about uh, other roles that plant pathogens are playing in uh, forest ecosystems? Right, right. So um, this all sort of started as a hypothesis um, in the early 1970s by uh, two ecologists, Jansen and Connell. They sort of came up with this idea simultaneously. Um, so we call it the Jansen-Connell hypothesis. And people have been testing this for a while now. Uh, basically how it goes is that particularly in tropical forests, you have a very high diversity of tree species. You can get up to, I was reading a paper this morning, they had 300 species out of 600 individuals in a one hectare plot. So in other words, you only see two individuals of each species out of 600 total trees, which is pretty remarkable. So uh, Jansen and Connell put forth this theory as as a hypothesis for or wh- how that could be. And it, basically it's that um, if you have species-specific um, pathogens or enemies, they call them natural enemies, they included insects as a possibility in this too, which hasn't been ruled out. Um, but if you have species-specific enemies that attack trees, so one enemy attacking one tree species, um, if that tree species becomes too dominant, too dense, let's say, in the forest, there's too many individuals growing close to each other, um, though that 
clump of, of those individuals will be highly susceptible to this enemy, whether it's an insect or a pathogen, because they are growing so close together. So, you, you know, you think of getting sick. Um, you typically don't want, you know, you go to a daycare and you see all the, all the kids are, you know, packed in this daycare and they're all getting sick because they're so close together spatially. Um, and so we think that the same thing, we know the same thing happens to trees and plants. They get sick, right? They get um, pathogens that, that attack them. And so if there is this species-specific uh, mechanism um, that limits the most dominant species in the, in the forest, that allows uh, other less you know, less dominant species, less competitively dominant species to, to move in and actually, you know, colonize and coexist. Okay, so you're saying the plant pathogens, by doing their damage to the specific species that they like the best and kind of knocking that species down so that it's not crowding everyone else out, then pathogens are making space for other species to come in and for other spe- species to share the community. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, I guess, you know... Coming from a botanist, I would say that's good because I like to see a landscape that has a whole bunch of different species. And especially in Panama, I guess that's like really striking that there are just so many different species in a small area. It is quite remarkable, yeah. So you actually bring up a good point, Kristen, in the sense that the Panamanian rainforests have such a high level of diversity. Like you're trying to study a system that is arguably one of the most complex that we know of. So uh, why is there a focus on these Panamanian rainforests as opposed to kind of monoculture type environment? Right. So I guess, I mean, in plant ecology, we've sort of always been interested in what drives natural communities, you know, like why are the things the way they are, how we see them in a, in a natural population. There are people that definitely study, you know, monocultures. There's interest in, you know, uh, manipulating fungal communities to increase product productivity in plantations, let's say. Um, but I personally am interested in understanding, you know, these natural systems, why, why do we see so many tree species in, in these forests and what could be driving that? And actually Panama isn't even the most diverse, which is pretty striking as well. (laughs) So you've got your data from, from this project because you're nearly done with your master's now. And so uh, do you want to just give us a, you know, some of the highlights of what uh, you have found from collecting soil in Panama? Sure. Absolutely. So, as I said, I collected uh, soil cores in Panama. Um, I was looking at three different sites, uh, three different forests, basically. And uh, so, like I said, I broke down uh, the fungal community into different, what I call functional groups or guilds. Um, You can sort of think of these as um, different groups that make their living differently. So, I guess a human analogy would sort of be um, the jobs that they have, right? Different careers you have. You could have a lawyer, you could have a businessman, you could have a researcher, a librarian, they all, you know, have different skills and they make their living a different way. Um, but they're still, they still have the same basic needs you know, they have, they need nutrients, they need carbohydrates to live. Um, so I broke my fungal communities into four major groups. So we have the plant pathogens that we've been talking about previously. We have saprophytes, which are decomposing fungi. They'll, you know, feed off of, uh, dead organic matter like wood and, and leaf litter. Um, you have ectomycorrhizal fungi, which um, I can maybe explain in, in a little while. They're basically a mutualistic fungi that uh, live in plant roots and help the plants grow. And you have arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which are another category of mutual, mutualistic fungi that are helpful to plants as well. And so I was looking to see how do soil properties and how do tree communities affect each of these fungal guilds. 
um, and may they affect them differently depending on uh, what guild it is and what uh, function that guild has. Okay, and so did you find that uh, which of the factors affect um, the plant pathogens, for example? Right. So this actually was the more surprising of the guild. You picked the one. That was oh, whoops. <laughs> you can start with a different one. <laughs> yeah, let's start with one where, we, where it sort of worked out how we expected. So um, the, our buscure mycorrhizal fungi, let's start with those. So it's a, it's a group, like I said, that, that's helpful for plants. Um, we know that they're not very host-specific. So if you try to inoculate different plant species with these guys, they'll basically you know play well with anyone. They'll, they'll associate with anyone. They'll help anyone. Um, their major role is taking out phosphorus from the soil. Um, they have these hyphal networks that have super high surface area to volume ratio, which allows them to really efficiently absorb nutrients and explore the soil. Um, and so because they're not host specific and because they are living in the soil, obviously we would expect that they would be mostly, most strongly influenced by the soil properties where we, we look. And it's true. We found no correlation at all um, between these fungi and the tree communities surrounding them. And we found a, quite a strong correlation between the soil properties like pH, um, soil moisture, and phosphorus. Okay, I see. So those AM fungi, they like phosphorus, for example, and so they are. you can find them where there's a lot of phosphorus. Yeah, actually, well, so actually they're negatively correlated with oh, phosphorus, okay. which, is, which is interesting. So the plant, right, is needing the phosphorus, and it can associate with this fungi- fungus. But it only does so when there is low phosphorus because the fungus is so good at getting the phosphorus. It doesn't need the help. The plant doesn't need the help when it's growing in a high phosphorus site. Oh, um, okay. And the, the mutualism, in other words, having this fungus in your roots for the plant is really costly because you have to give it sugars all the time. It's really demanding. Um, and so you don't want to associate this if you with this fungus if you don't have to. And so mostly they're found in low phosphorus sites. Okay. Um, what about so? Let's talk then about the plant pathogens and the other side of the coin. Sure. So we'll we'll uh, maybe get to the saprophytes and the EM or the ectomycorrhizal later on. But what about the pathogens? I want to know the punchline here. Yeah. Okay. So this was the unexpected part of the study, and we don't still really have a good explanation, but. So because the pathogens are host-specific, you know, there's lots of evidence showing that there's sort of this uh, reciprocal selection that happens between a plant pathogen and a plant. And this is because the pathogen, you know, will evolve some sort of mechanism to infiltrate the plant cell, you know, some sort of weapon, essentially, if you want to give it a human analogy. Um, And the plant doesn't want to be killed or have its nutrients stolen. And so it, in turn, develops a defense mechanism. So because this is happening back and forth, there's sort of this uh, arms race, if you will, um, that happens where the, the pathogen evolves a uh, you know, weapon and the plant evolves a fence, and they just keep going back and forth. And when that happens, we'd expect them to become very specific because the weapon that the pathogen evolves only works for that defense and doesn't work for the defense. It doesn't work to defeat the defense of another plant species. So over time, we expect the pathogens to become very host-specific, which has been shown for some, not for all of them. Um, so because of that, we expected the pathogens to be strongly correlated with the tree community. So right as the community shifts, of the tree community shifts, you'd expect the pathogens to also shift with it. Um, and we expected the pathogens to be influenced by the soil as well. Uh, what we found was that the soil influenced the pathogens more than the tree communities. 
um, which was which was quite strange. The correlation was actually uh, twice as strong. So the soil was 0.2, and the pathogen and the trees were 0.11. So the plant pathogens are more dependent on nutrients from the soil potentially than they are from uh, getting nutrients from their tree hosts. Right. It, it looks like it in this forest anyways. And I, get, I guess this sort of underlines the overall sort of message of this research that I've done, which I guess is soil, soil properties um, sort of underlie, it seems, um, the sort of composition and diversity of all of these fungal groups, regardless of uh, how they make their living, regardless of if they steal from trees or if they play nice with trees. It seems like soil properties sort of determine um, you know, how many there are and and which ones are growing where, um, kind of as a background level. Okay, so one of the kind, maybe one of the conclusions to to your analysis is that uh, soil nutrients very important for fun- driving fungal diversity. Absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I just really quick want to remind the listeners that you are tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis, and you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination, where we host a different graduate student and talk to them about their research and personal stories every Sunday at 7 p.m. And right now we're sitting down with Tyler Shapey. Tyler, do you want to uh, just tell us, every, sum up everything that you just told us in one sentence? <laughs> okay, so... Uh, let's see. In on one spot. <laughs> in one sentence. Well, what would you tell somebody at ESA? Yeah. In Portland. Give um, us another tiny elevator pitch. I had more than one sentence. Okay. <laughs> two sentences. Um, okay. Two sentences. Let's see. Soil fungi in Panama respond differently to soil properties and tree communities depending on which uh, functional guild they're in. But soil properties seem to be the strongest driving factor in determining diversity and composition of soil fungi. Sweet. And so, by the way, for those listeners interested, which me being a soil person, I'm very interested in Tyler's <laughs> research, he's going to be giving his defense on the 29th. So uh, we'll be sure to live tweet his defense or something. Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> but, um, Facebook. <laughs> Spoiler alert, soil yeah. properties. Uh, but, yeah. but one thing that I think is consistent, you know, you, you really specialize in fungi. I specialize in soil. We're both really interested in figuring out why things are the way they are. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to hear what got you on that mode of really trying to uncover the unknown. Why are you the way you are, Tyler? <laughs> I guess that's what, what I'm showing. What are you doing too. here? <laughs> How did you get here to Oregon State? <laughs> How did I get here to Oregon State? Well, where do you want me to start? How far back? Okay. How did you start becoming interested in ecology and uh, in, uh, investigating ecology and biodiversity? Right. Okay. So I guess I would probably go all the way back to when I was growing up. Um, I, my grandparents had, uh, you know, a plot of land. I'm from Wisconsin originally, so they had a piece of land in kind of central Wisconsin. And I would go there all the time, you know, as a kid in holidays or on weekends. And my grandpa would take me around, you know, the land. He would show me the different plants. He would identify them for me and the birds. And he would show me, you know, tracks of deer and things like that. And so that sort of from an early age got me interested in thinking about, you know, wildlife and plants and, and how they're out there, I guess, would sort of brought me an awareness um, which I think a lot of people necessarily can't say that, um, having grown up. And it's interesting because this um, plot of land is near where Aldo Leopold um, wrote his famous Sand County Almanac um, book. So it's sort of a nice connection to a well-known naturalist, which is sort of neat. Um, 
And I went to school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for my undergraduate. Um, I studied environmental studies in Spanish. Um, and I guess I got into um, the environment because it was sort of a long-standing, you know, interest from when I was growing up and I was deciding what I should major in. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, so I volunteered for a lab in the Department of Botany uh, with Dr. Don Waller. Um, and he allowed me to volunteer to do field work. And I worked in the lab. I did some statistical work. I did some field collections. So that was a really you know, big step forward. He showed me that you, know, you can work in a lab. This is how you do research, um, which was really interesting. And I also took a class from Dr. Tom Givnish, who is in the botany department as well. And he is awesome, first of all. He's... Uh, <laughs> As, I would, as he would say, a tour de force because he's just a genius and his, you know, he's a very eloquent speaker, I guess. And so he, it was a field-based class at Plant Ecology, so he would take us every Friday for like a five-hour field trip on Friday afternoons to different locations around Wisconsin, and he would take us in the field and explain to us, you know, this is the species, it has this strategy, um, look at the thick bark it makes, or look at these compound leaves, and he would, you know, explain... In, in his theory, like why it would have these traits and why it would be growing here. And he introduced to me this idea, uh, which it turns out is, is older than him, but uh, he was very good at teaching it, which is sort of this applying an economic view to, to plants and to you know, biology in general. Because organisms have to make trade-offs. They have limited energy, they have limited resources, and they want to survive and grow. And so they have to choose how they spend those resources. I'm seeing a connection here then. So you are studying function, or, um, functional guilds of fungi, almost a tongue twister, <laughs> functional guilds of fungi, and you compared this to how the fungi are making their living or how they're getting their bread, how they're, how they're making their money in a, in a way. And so then, so I see a connection back to you were really turned on to ecology from this whole concept of uh, plants have to spend their money in certain ways and they have to be selective. So do you have like an example of how a plant would be selective and what kind of trade-off they might be faced with? Yeah, right. So there's sort of a famous paper by uh, this guy, J.P. Grime, um, and he has sort of this triangle of trade-offs. So I'll just talk a little bit about that, I guess. Um, basically, he thinks that there is a trade-off between growth, reproduction, and... Um, uh, survival. Survival, yeah, right, survival. And so you can't do all three extremely well, right? You have to decide where you invest your resources. And so, you know, you can compare, let's just say, a tiny herbaceous annual plant um, to a big oak tree with big thick bark that's, you know, 200 years old. So these are extremely different plants. Um, they have this, you know, similar needs. They have to uptake nutrients from the soil. They have to, you know, make sugars with photosynthesis. But they do it in very different ways. And um, so the oak tree, for example, places a lot of energy into um, survival, right? So it is a long-living species, hundreds of years. It'll probably outlive us. Um, and it does that by investing lots of resources in defense mechanisms, right? So it has pathogens and insects attacking it, but it can overcome that by defending itself against them. But to do that, it has to make, you know, secondary compounds. These are, you know, large molecules that are costly to produce. And so it, because it invests in that, it may not be able to invest in growth. So, you know, lots of oak species are, you know, slower growing. It, it might be a slower growing when it was a seedling, probably the annual would outcompete it, for example. 
So then, the annual on the other side of the hand, on the other side of the coin, how would it be spending its energy mostly? Um, it would mostly be spending its energy in growth. I mean, typically annuals are, you know, they are highly shade intolerant, so they need to grow in probably like some sort of patch in the forest, in the understory, um, and also in uh, reproduction because they don't survive more than one year. So yeah. <laughs> in order to not go extinct, you'd have to reproduce and produce lots of seeds for the next year. So. Okay, I see. So it's an annual plant, only can only live for one year, has to grow fast and reproduce fast, and then it, it will die. Right. <laughs> and, it, and it probably doesn't care about um, if some of its individuals get killed by a pathogen because right. it makes so many of them, makes so many seeds, and probably so many individuals that if some of them die, that's okay. All right. So then how did you decide it was after you've now... Uh, you have your two degrees in environmental studies in Spanish, and you really you know that you like science and that you like biology and ecology. How do you decide then that it's time for you to go to graduate school? Right. So after undergrad, I wanted to sort of explore a little bit. I was thinking about going directly to grad school, um, but I got a lot of advice not to, which I actually <laughs> really appreciate now because you know it let me do some really interesting, cool things, and I think I had a broader perspective when I did go to grad school. So um, I did two volunteer programs, um, both through the Chicago Botanic Garden, um, directly after undergrad. And basically, they set me up uh, with the Bureau of Land Management, um, doing some field work, plant surveying. Um, so I did the first one in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so I lived in Phoenix, and I worked uh, north of Phoenix in a natural preserve, which was very cool. Um, I learned a lot of new plant species, and it was a beautiful landscape to, to be in. And then I did a second internship um, in Ridgecrest, California, which is like a really small town by a, an old naval base, uh, which is kind of doing similar work, doing plant surveys. Um, but through those experiences, I realized that while I loved being outside and doing the actual surveying and doing the field work, I wasn't able to ask the questions, um, which sort of intellectually is what drives me because... It's just really cool to think about and talk about. And I felt like, you know, a lot of my energy was not being put into what I wanted it to, which was to sort of ask the questions and figure out the answer. You wanted to be like the creative lead on the project. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be the creative lead. And so I decided that grad school was what I needed to do in order to accomplish that goal um, because I talked to my supervisors and they had masters and they said, yeah, grad school will teach you all about how to ask the questions and how to answer them. And, you know, it'll give you a credential, which you can go ahead and become a team leader, let's say. So now that you're about done with your master's here at Oregon State, do you feel like you want to continue asking those types of questions and take the next plunge into, say, a Ph.D. program? Yes, I do. And after being at the Ecological Society of America meeting just a couple of days ago, I'm pretty excited now. I was sort of thinking about, you know, taking a break from academia, which I still may do, um, I don't know. I have to decide. It's sort of all up in the air. It's sort of at a crossroads right now. This is news to me. I'm Tyler's <laughs> lab mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was actually talking to you know a couple you know PIs, a couple of researchers there, and they were like, "Oh, you should come to Australia, you know, with me and work on this this question of ectomycorrhizae and plant pathogens. Um, we could do some cool work. Just apply for this grant, and we can see what happens." So, for those on Twitter, there's a lot of hashtag ESA17 of professors looking for students to interview for postdocs, uh, student positions, PhD programs. So 
if anyone else is in the botany plant pathology department, I'm sure they were at ESA, but that's a good resource to look at because there is a lot. There is a lot. There are people being offered. I heard many people being offered things, and they were just boards of, of posters of job offers for you know postdocs and things. So. Definitely conferences are ways to kind of shop around for graduate school and uh, different postdoc positions as well. Yeah, it's a great way to network. Highly recommended. Yeah. Well, we are getting around to the end of our show, unfortunately, um, but we have learned so much about fungal diversity and the drivers of fungal diversity in Panamanian rainforests. But we do have our traditions to get to. Uh, so our first tradition is to ask you for your advice, which you've already been kind of sprinkling in there, some uh, <laughs> wise words of wisdom. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we will ask you again for some advice. Um, and who are you advi- also, when you answer this question, tell us who you are advising with this advice. Right. Okay. So I think I would give a piece of advice to people who are maybe undergrads or considering graduate school currently, um, which is make... Think of grad school as a tool. Think of it as a tool to get you to where you want to go. Um, I know, you know, sometimes people are tempted to sort of have it as a next step, sort of a default next step. But I want people to make sure that they know that they're doing grad school for a particular reason, which is maybe it'll gain you some sort of tool that's marketable in the job place, or maybe it'll give you, you know, the credential to keep asking the questions that you're really passionate about asking. But, you know, every day when you get up, ask yourself, why am I doing this? And is this going to get me where I want to go? I think that when I, when I made that realization, it was pretty key um, in sort of seeing the way forward personally. Thank you for that. And what's the second one, Adrian? So our second one is we always ask our guests for a song and we always ask them why they chose it. Right. So I chose um, a song by the Derek Trucks band. Um, he's probably my favorite guitarist. Although I've been discovering some new ones recently, but he's he's definitely <laughs> up there. Um, so he's a slide guitarist, and he plays blues, and, but he plays a lot of Eastern music too. Sort of like Indian, he's influenced by like Indian music, um, and so he has a very you know broad base of of, of things that he plays. Um, but I think he's the most talented slide player to have ever lived. And if, <laughs> and and if you if you don't believe me, look at him up on YouTube, and you'll see some amazing sounds that you've never heard before come from a guitar. Well, I know that we can trust Tyler on this one because you are also a talented guitar player. So, so yeah, the song is called Sailing On by Derek Truxpan. All right. Well, you are listening to Inspiration Dissemination, and we are sitting down. We are just interviewing Tyler Shapey from the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And uh, his song for you today is Sailing On by the Derek Trucks Band. And uh, you heard it on KBVR Corvallis 88.7 FM Inspiration Dissemination. We're, we'll be back next week with, who are we back with next week? We are back with Carolyn Gombert next week. It'll be myself and Scott Classic. Awesome. So tune in again next week for Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR. And here's Sailing On.